Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In alhamdulillah, mufsalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah. Brothers and sisters and friends, I greet you with the warmest Islamic greetings of peace. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. For those who don't know, that means may the peace and blessings of God be upon you all. Today we're going to be talking about the failed hypothesis, has science killed religion? And I'm going to talk about two main things. The first thing I'm going to talk about is, does science lead to atheism? Because we hear about this quite a bit, especially in the online sphere. Also, we're going to be talking about, well, has science led to the denial of religion? The denial of revelation? So I want to address these two key topics. I think it's very important for us to understand that there is a distinction between what the academics say and what happens on Google. Okay, I think that's very important for us to understand this because the very fact that we have to give such a lecture or a talk is a symptom of a cause. It's a symptom of a problem and the problem is that there is a bit of a gap, especially in Western society, especially in Britain, between what's happening in academia and what's happening in popular culture. Yes, there are overlaps, sometimes there's some kind of link, but generally speaking, there is a gap amongst certain groups of people. And this is why I think the British government had to basically come up with the project called Impact, which was to make an impact. The professors and the academics had to basically you know, engage in popular culture discourse to bridge that gap. And to do so, they would make an impact, right? So this is one of the reasons why I think the British government did that. So I want you to really understand that this question really is not much of a question when it comes to academic discourse because professors and academics, especially when it comes to the first point that I mentioned earlier, you know, does science lead to atheism? They would say, even if they're atheists, they would say, no, it doesn't. And that's, we have to be very honest. It just doesn't. Simple as that. And I'm going to try and explain why that's the case. So let's start with the first thing that we, that we want to speak about, which is, does science lead to atheism? Does science lead to the denial of God? Well, this is a false assertion. And the reason it's a false assertion is based on four false assumptions. Okay? The first assumption is, science is the only yardstick for truth. Right? So if you have that false assumption that science is the only yardstick for truth and science can't really deal with a metaphysical notion like God because he's not in the universe, he's not physical in the universe, therefore God doesn't exist because science is the only yardstick for truth. And if we can't use science to try and prove this metaphysical notion and science can't even deal with the idea of God, therefore he doesn't exist. And that's the kind of assumption here. The second assumption is, hold on a second guys, science works. Keyhole surgery, the iPhone, science works. Therefore, it is true. And if it's true, and science can only deal with things that you can observe, and God by definition you can't observe, therefore God doesn't exist. Yes, that's very fuzzy logic, but that's the assumption here. The third false assumption is, science leads to certainty. It leads to certainty, absolute truths. These are scientific facts. They're unchanging. It's the Moses tablets, right? <laughs> you hear lots of people talk like this sometimes, especially on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and all those funny places, right? So 
if it leads to certainty and science cannot deal with a metaphysical notion that you can't observe like a creator, therefore, God doesn't exist. Because science can only be certain about things other than God, for example. <laughs> yes, that's fuzzy logic, but that's the basis of that assumption, that false assumption. The fourth false assumption is basically people adopt philosophical naturalism and they misunderstand methodological naturalism. Now, I don't want to give you a huge headache, headache with lots of terms. I'm going to discuss that a bit later. So those are the four false assumptions. Now, before I get to, you know, before I break down those four false assumptions, let's just really understand what science is, okay? In, in a general, but in, in, in a basic way. So we really understand what we're talking about here. Science is not just what you observe. We have to first understand that. Observations are required for science, but science or scientific theories and conclusions are not just observations. Okay, so when I see the moon, and therefore the moon exists, that's not really a scientific theory or a scientific explanation. It's just I'm mirroring my observations. Okay, science requires observations, and what science does, it reasons, right? It uses reason to understand the observations themselves. So, say you have more than five observations, you see five observ observations about a particular phenomenon, you use now your rational faculties to make inferences or to see if there's any connections between these observations and to understand them holistically, to understand them in a comprehensive way. That's essentially science, right? And that's the beauty of science. Now Bertrand Russell, he said in his book Religion and Sci Science published by Oxford, Science is the attempt to discover by means of observation and reasoning based upon it. So it's by means of observation, you have observation, direct and indirect observation, and you reason over those observations. And he continues to basically discover particular facts about the world and the laws connecting facts with one another. So that's essentially what science is. Yes, there's much more to it than that. The method is a very interesting method and there are debates amongst the philosophers of science concerning its method. For example, if you're a Popperian, Karl Popper, you might you know, want to adopt falsification, but if you're a soft Popperian, you'd be like, it's useful, but you know, falsified theories can change if you change the assumptions. You can revive falsified theories if you change the assumptions. There's big debates about these things, but let's put them to the side. The point is, you require observations and you require require a rational mind, a human intellect, to understand those observations. That, in essence, is science, okay? So, now we've got that out of the way, let's go to the first false assumption. Because what we're dealing with here now, we're basically saying, well, science doesn't lead to atheism, and the assertion that people express that science does lead to atheism is based on false, four false assumptions. The first false assumption is, science is the only yardstick for truth. Now, the first problem with the first false assumption is it's self-defeating. If I say to you guys, science is the only yardstick for truth, and that statement itself has to be true, then I would just basically say to you, can you prove that statement scientifically? No, it's self-defeating. That's the first point. We can all go home now. Let's get our pizza, right? So it's self-defeating. It's, it's, it's almost like saying there are no sentences in the English language longer than three words. But I've just uttered a sentence that's longer than three words, okay? Now, that's the first point. 
The, the, the second point I want to mention is, well, science is not the only yardstick for truth. Why? Because our, our observations are always going to be limited. And truth will always change from that point of view. And that's one of the beauties of science. Now, the atheist and the philosopher of science and the philosopher of biology, Professor Elliot Sober, he basically says in his essay called Empiricism that at any moment in time, scientists are limited to the observations they have at hand. Let's just think of it, just use your intellect here. It's so obvious that you may have another observation that can contradict your previous conclusions based upon your previous limited observations. So therefore, truth can change in science, which is one of the beauties of science. Truth can change. What we consider to be true can change. So science is limited to what it can observe. And not only can its truth claims change, but its scope and its area of focus is limited. Therefore, it can't answer other questions. Because there are many things that you can't observe directly or indirectly, but yet we believe them to be true. For example, necessary logical truths. You can't observe necessary logical connections or necessary logical links between logical properties and deductive logic. I know that sounds really crazy. I'm going to explain it later, okay? But you can't observe that. You, and by the way, you have to have that before you do science. So it's limited to observation. The third point, science is morally neutral. Or in other words, it's amoral. Now, what do I mean by this? I don't mean scientists are immoral. Of course not, God forbid, right? What I'm saying here is, although scientists are human beings too, and sometimes we have a culture we think just because he's a scientist, he's like, you know, the religion of the white coats, right? <laughs> we have that kind of assumption sometimes in popular discourse, right? Anyway, so science is, is morally neutral. What do I mean by this? Well, there are many things that we take to be first principles in moral theory, in meta-ethics. Meaning that there are some things that we consider to be objectively morally true. There are objective moral values in the world. There are objective moral truths. Not all of them, but I, I, I'm a true believer that we all believe in objective moral truths regardless what society tells us, regardless what individual minds tell us, and regardless what our intuitions or our psychological our emotions tell us, right? So let me give you an example. You go home, you're tired from work or university, and you turn on the television, and you see breaking news. And, it, and the headline says, man beheads five-year-old. Now, that's morally wrong, right? Yes? Yes? No? Okay. All right, let's assume you all said no, right? An emphatic no, of course. It, 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 so we said yes, rather. What, what was my question? I'm going to get myself in trouble. It's morally wrong, correct? Good. Now, next question. Is it objectively morally wrong? For example, if the whole world were to come and say to you, it's okay to behead a five-year-old, it'd still be morally wrong. And if individual minds... Right? And individual human beings with their own emotional disposition came to you and said, no, let me justify it to you intellectually and emotionally. You'd be like, no, it's still morally wrong. This is what we mean by objective. It's outside of the limited human mind in a way, outside of limited emotions. And therefore it requires some kind of grounding. What explains and takes into account the objectivity of that moral value and where did it come from? If we consider some morals to be objective in this sense, science has no say. Science is asleep. It has no say in this issue. Why? Because 
Science can't provide a rational basis for the objectivity of moral values, for objective moral truths and values. Why? Well, let's remind ourselves what Charles Darwin said. He gave an extreme example concerning this notion. He basically said, if we were to be reared under precisely the same conditions as the hive bees, we would think it's okay to kill our brothers and okay to kill our fertile daughters. Now, if you extend that logic and you talk about the nurse shark, you know, one would argue that if we were reared under precisely the same biological conditions as the nurse shark, we would think it's okay to rape women. That's what the nurse shark does. Check the National Geographic. It, it, the nurse shark bites the fin of its mate and wrestles its mate, which is tantamount, equivalent to forced mating, rape, right? So there is a problem here because all the Darwinian mechanism can do or to be a bit more specific, all that natural selection can do is provide us with the ability to formulate ethical rules. We agree with this. It gives you the ability to formulate ethical rules, but it doesn't give you a foundation to justify or take into account objective moral truths. Why? Because these morals are subject, not objective anymore, they're subject to inevitable biological changes. Not only that, Morals lose any meaning under biology. They lose meaning because it's just almost arbitrary. It's like a, a result of an accidental rearing of certain biological conditions. That's why science is amoral from this perspective or morally neutral from this perspective. The fourth point is that science can't dwell into the personal, into the personal. Now, what do I mean by this? Now, for my postgrad, I did a thesis on, the, on physicalism and neuroscience and the hard problem of consciousness, okay? And this dwells with what's happening inside ourselves, the, the person, okay? Now, science can't deal with the hard problem of consciousness. Yes, it does great work concerning, you know, how we think, cognition, the fact that we are able to think and it can deal with all of these things. But can science deal with what really makes us human? The fact that we have inner subjective conscious states. For example, you know, who likes strawberries? I'm thinking of a story, I had, a, had 400 grams of strawberries this morning. That's what I'm thinking. Right? Everyone likes strawberries, right? Now when you have a strawberry on, I don't know, on a Sunday morning with some, with some double cream, there is an internal experience that you're having. There's an internal subjective conscious experience that you're having. You could ask the question, what is it like for Abdul or Susan or John or Fatima to have a strawberry on a Sunday morning dipped in double cream? What is it like? And that answer cannot be found using science because we're dealing with someone's inner subjective conscious state. And if I were to know everything about the human mind, and map out all the neurochemical, electrochemical happenings and firings, right? And correlate them with someone's experience, I will still not know what it's like for that person to have that experience. Because it's just a, neuroscience is a study of correlations. It's just a study of correlations. So I would not know what it's like for that person to have that inner subjective conscious experience. All I have are utterances, linguistic utterances of the description of the inner subjective conscious state. It's crispy, it's sweet, it's lovely, right? Or whatever the case may be. 
These are linguistic utterances which represent meaning, which is a representation of what's happening inside. You still don't know what is sweet for that person and what is crunchy for that person. That's the hard problem of consciousness. In a nutshell, it requires another lecture, but that's generally it, right? This is why Professor Thomas Nagel, he makes a really good point and he raised this point in his famous paper, I believe it was published in 1973 or 1974, when he wrote, what is it like to be a bat? Right? And he said, look, science is a problem. Methodologically, it's limited because science is third-person fact. So how can third-person fact deal with first-person fact? There you go. And the debate continues. Right? By the way, I'm not saying I've solved the problem here or I'm expressing you know, all the views in five minutes. That would be highly arrogant of me. It's a big, massive discussion. But generally speaking, when I give these lectures, it's to plant seeds in your heart and mind so you continue your own intellectual and spiritual journey. I'm not here to teach you anything. Rather, I consider these lectures therapy for myself, right? <laughs> so, the next point. Science can't answer why things happen. That's another limitation of science. Imagine my auntie came along here, right? And my auntie's very good at cooking. And she baked a nice chocolate ghetto. Massive one, like 25 inches, right? Chocolate ghetto, ghetto, right? And then she left. She vowed silence and she left. Let me ask you the question as a scientist. Why did she bake the cake? Why? Come on, scientists. Why did she bake the cake? Sorry? To be eaten. Maybe not. Maybe she just wants to show how artistic it is. That's an assumption. Why did she bake the cake? Oh, scientists. What's the purpose of the cake? That's what we mean when we're saying why. Well, you would never know. But if I asked you how she baked the cake, you don't have to ask her. If you have the right tools, the right method, and the, uh, the, the right amount of time, you could tell me how she baked the cake. You, know, you could test the kind of, I don't know, protein bonds and all of, uh, my, my science is rubbish. But you know what? We know what's going on in a cake. Something's <laughs> happening in a cake. There are protein bonds in a cake, right? Well, there you go, I was right. Don't laugh at me. <laughs> so there's, there's some biology stuff happening and chemicals happening, right? You could assess that and find out how she made the cake, but you can't tell me why on earth she made the cake. So science is limited from that point of view. It can't tell you about the purpose of things. The next issue is that science is not the only yardstick for truth because there are other sources of knowledge. And for me, this is the most frustrating. It's like people, don't believe, people are not even bothered to read a basic philosophy book. Philosophy 101. If you're 16 years old and you know, buy an A-level standard book on epistemology, the study of knowledge, and you would see that there are other sources of knowledge other than just touching and feeling things. One of them include testimony, believe it or not. The say-so of others. And let me summarize what I'm saying with what happened a few years ago with Professor Lawrence Krauss. So, obviously I did a few mistakes as well. People change. If you're the same person you were four years ago, then you have issues. So, you know, I follow kind of a Bruce Lee philosophy. You should be like a river. You keep on flowing, right? So, I'm not the same person. You don't step in the same river twice, as they say. Because it's changing, isn't it? Yeah? But anyway, there are some good things to learn from that discussion with Mr. Krauss. And I said to Krauss, hey Krauss, I didn't do it that way, but you know what I mean. I said, hey Professor Krauss, you have a metaphysical presupposition. You think that truth is as a result of what you touch and feel. 
He said, yes, of course, I'm a scientist. And I said, fine, but there are other sources of knowledge. He said, like what? And I said, testimony. And he sniggered at me. He said, I just do the science. And I said, well, do this science. Do you believe in evolution? He said, yes, of course, I follow the evidence. And then I said to him, have you done all the experiments yourself? Have you done all the science yourself? And then he paused. Everybody started to laugh at him, or lots of people started to laugh at him. Why? Because it exposed his metaphysical presupposition. It is true that he has to rely on the say-so of other scientists, because he ain't going to do the science himself. And if you rely just on your own experiments that you've done directly, you will never have the science you have today. And that's the beauty of human knowledge. You have to rely on other people. And that's why if you study the scientific method, you would see that a key part of the scientific method are the sayings of other scientists, are the conclusions of other scientists. Now you may claim, yes, but their studies are repeatable, and they have been repeated. If you haven't repeated it yourself, it's still the say-so of others. It could be one scientist or 500. The fact that they are telling you the basis of that knowledge is not empirical. It's the say-so of others. Now, what's very interesting, there's been a re revival in Western epistemology on the issue of testimony in the past 30 to 40 years. For example, you had the 1991 book by Professor Cody. He wrote the book Testimony, a Philosophical Discussion. And he basically argues that testimony is not only a source of knowledge, it's a fundamental source of knowledge. <laughs> it's fundamental. It's indispensable. And so he basically argues that testimony is not only useful, but it's a fundamental source. And he quotes David Hume, the famous Scottish skeptic, that disagrees with Professor Cody. And David Hume basically says, look, testimony is useful for the wise man, but we only accept testimony, we only accept testimony because it's in line with our collective experiences. So Professor Cody being a genius, what does he say? He says, hold on, Mr. David Hume. What do you mean by collective experiences? Because the only way to understand other people's experiences is to ask them and they will tell you. So he, he, he's actually shown that testimony, the say-so of others, is fundamental to knowledge. Because if David Hume is saying that, yes, testimony is useful, but it's not fundamental because it has to be in line with our collective experiences, well, how do you know what people's collective experiences are? It's only via testimony. So it's a really good book that I think you should read that shows that testimony is fundamental. Now, by the way, testimonial knowledge could be wrong, just like our empirical knowledge could be wrong. I'm not saying it's accurate. I'm saying it's a fundamental source. Now, what we have to do to find out what constitutes valid testimonial knowledge, that's a different philosophical discussion. And what's very interesting, you have many talking about this. Dr. Elizabeth Fricker, she makes a really good point. She says, look, given my limitations as parametric, given that I'm a limited human being, I can't know everything. I have to rely on the authority of others, which is simple as that. Benjamin McMyler, associate, associate professor Benjamin McMyler, he says that in order to have testimonial knowledge, the one who's giving the knowledge has to basically have the responsibility of referring back to people's challenges. And the audience that's receiving the testimonial knowledge, they have to basically, it's within their right to challenge the one who's giving the testimonial knowledge. You have, for example, Emeritus Professor Keith Lehrer. He's brilliant. You know what he says? He says, in order for testimonial knowledge to be valid or to be constituted as knowledge, you have to be trustworthy in your assessments on the trustworthiness of others. Now, if a lot of you know about Islamic theology, this is in line with 
what Muslims have been discussing for 1400 years in the study of prophetic traditions, ilm al-hadith, when we talk about the trustworthiness of the reporter. Anyway, I went too much on testimony. The point is, testimonial knowledge is a fundamental source of knowledge. And I want to end it, this part by asking you a question. How do you know China exists? <laughs> Many of us, it's fundamentally based on testimonial knowledge. Even if you have pictures, even if you have images on a map, someone told you that's the picture of Chinese people and, and China. And even if you met a Chinese person today, oh, you have to just believe what they said. It's testimonial, really. Also, what's testimonial is your mother being the one that gave birth to you. You have zero proof. Don't even tell me you have a DNA test certificate. Because you don't. And if you did, that's still testimonial. It's a certificate. A testimony that someone did something. You didn't do it yourself. Right? So from that point of view, how do you know your mother gave birth to you? You only know because of testimonial uh, evidence. The fact that your dad told you, the midwife told you, there's a certificate. There may be a video. Right? The video is not empirical because you didn't come out like that, bro, did you? With a beard and glasses and a laptop. Imagine, that would be a miracle. God exists, right? So you didn't, you weren't capitated from your mother's womb like that, were you? No, you had a different face. Obviously far more cuter. So, yeah. <laughs> so from that point of view, someone have to tell you, hey, that was you when you were a child. So when it comes to things like China and the existence, that, the, the, the fact that you believe that your mother gave birth to you, it's all testimonial knowledge. So it's not true that science is the only source of of, of truth, the only yardstick for truth, because we have other sources of knowledge like testimony. Final point to deal with the first assumption, which is science cannot prove necessary truths. And this is very interesting. Science can't prove necessary truths, and these necessary truths are required before you do any science. For example, logic, logical reasoning, deductive logic. Number one, all bachelors are unmarried men. Number two, John is a bachelor. Number three, therefore John is a unmarried man. This is what you call a valid deductive argument. It's also sound. A valid deductive argument is where the conclusion necessarily follows from the previous statements or premises. A sound deductive argument if it's valid and also the premises have some form of justification. This is a sound deductive argument. I repeat, number one. All bachelors are unmarried men. Number two, John is a bachelor. Number three, therefore John is an unmarried man. This is a necessary conclusion. Science can't prove these necessary conclusions. Because we know that the conclusion necessarily follows, not because of the meaning of the previous premises, but rather there are logical relations between the logical properties of that deductive argument of those premises. There is a logical relation between unmarried, John, bachelor, and men. There is a logical relation. Science cannot warrant, take into account, justify, explain those logical relations. So there you go. You need this before you do any science. And to claim that science is the only yardstick for truth is extremely problematic because you require Necessary, tr necessary truths like deductive arguments or logical relations between logical properties in order for you to even do any science in the first place. So the first assumption, in my humble opinion, is not a valid assumption.
Next point. Well, the second false assumption is science works, therefore its conclusions are true. Science works, guys, therefore its conclusions are true. Well, that's not true. <laughs> Let me explain. If we study the history of science, you will see that there were theories that were working that provided things that we now call truths, but we eventually found out that those theories are false. For example, in the 1700s, there was this workable theory called the theory of phlogiston. Okay, the theory of phlogiston. What was this theory? If things were combustible, they can burn, they would release phlogisticated air. Dan Rutherford in 1772, he used this workable theory and he discovered nitrogen. Nitrogen. But after a few more years, they found out that the theory itself was false. This shows us that you can get a truth from a workable theory that's eventually found to be false. So there you go. It's not true that just because science works, it must be true. That is a false assumption. You have the philosopher Semir Okasha in his book Philosophy of Science. He says, historically, there are many cases of theories that we now believe to be false, but that were empirically quite successful. Also, you have Professor Elliot Sober. He says, false models can sometimes work better than truer ones. Than true ones. So the second assumption that science works, therefore it's true, is a false assumption. Let's go to the third false assumption. The third false assumption is science leads to certainty. I mean, who says this? You know when people throw out there right, in the popular sphere, I had this this morning on my Facebook, I think. Someone said, you know, scientific fact. Like this, like Moses tablets coming from God himself. And there's a Moses tablet called scientific fact number 345. Yeah, and it gives you the fact. And that Moses tablet cannot change. It's engraven in stone. Scientific facts are not like that. They're not like that. For example, many people believe the Darwinian mechanism to be a scientific fact. Which basically means in scientific language, a well-confirmed theory that can change. That's what it means. That's what it means, people. Even the evangelical Richard Dawkins who's like in love with the Darwinian mechanism, he writes about it and he's a, he's a popularizer and he's an academic. He even said, I think it's in his book, The Devil's Chaplain, he said, well, in 10 years or in, 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 in the future, we could have future observations that can really contradict or change the way we see the Darwinian mechanism. It could look completely different. So when we say scientific fact, we mean it's well confirmed, but it may change. Some scientific facts are unlikely to change, some are likely to change. But the point is, they both have a likelihood to change in some way. So, science doesn't need to certainty from that point of view. Now, why is it the case that science doesn't need to certainty? Because of the problem of induction. Science relies heavily on induction. What is induction? It's like a thinking process where you have a limited set of observations and data. And as a result of your limited observations and data, you conclude for the next observation that you have not observed or the entire set of observations that you haven't observed. It moves from the known to the unknown. For example, if I've observed 1,000 white sheep, I may conclude the next sheep is going to be white. But is it true? 
Is it necessarily true? Is it 100% true? No, it's likely to be true given my observations that are limited. But I may observe a black sheep, right? So that's the problem of induction. It's probabilistic. It's not what you call definite knowledge from that point of view. It may change. You may have a future observation that contradicts previous conclusions. So let me give you a principle just for it to be in your mind. There can always be a new observation that can be at odds with our conclusions based on our limited data, based on our previous limited data. I repeat, there can always be a new observation that can be at odds with our conclusions based on our previous limited data. And that is the beauty of science. Because it changes and it adapts as a result of the new observations, indirect or, in, or direct observations we have experienced.